Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay. Oh, I'm a little frightened. There's some sort of event going on uh, at the stadium near my office, and they just set off a bunch of fireworks. So if there are if there are some explosions, uh, non non podcast related explosions, <laughs> you know what they are. Uh, it makes a will make a nice change for our listeners that potentially we're getting explosions of a different type on uh, this week. We'll see how we it, go. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, this episode of Exponent is sponsored by MailChimp. With MailChimp, you can automate your marketing so you can get back to work. Send onboarding emails to introduce new subscribers to your business or organization. Automatically follow up with customers after a purchase and recommend other products that they'll love. Surprise your best customers with a coupon triggered by their shopping behavior. Remind customers of the products they've left in their cart and encourage them to complete their transaction. Re-engage inactive subscribers. With MailChimp, you get enterprise-level automation without any of the headaches. And our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent. Yeah. Great to have them as a season sponsor. Speaking of automation. Yes. Yes. A nice little segue uh, provided by the ad, which is quite Yeah, our, 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 thanks, our, th- our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring this segue. <laughs> uh, awesome. So, so this week I wrote a, a bit of a, uh, in my estimation, a bit of a sprawling sort of article that touched on a lot of different points. It was nominally about artificial intelligence and what what it is and where we are now. You know, it, it's it, it's a hard topic to write about for lots of reasons. One, I mean neither of us are artificial intelligence uh, experts. Um well you might be. But <laughs> <Peace off. laughs> but uh neither of us are experts for for one. For two though, I mean there's really a sort of definitional pro- problem and i think that was kind of the, the the core of this like what is what is artificial intelligence where where does it fit in sort of the you know the grand scheme of not just computing but almost like human history as a whole and and so that was the, the, that's sort of the approach i took is kind of sorting try, trying to pick that apart yeah, I mean, you did. I mean, it is a really hard topic to write about this stuff. And as you get higher level and you reach back around these topics, it, it becomes infinitely harder to wrangle these things. But it felt like I was reading. It was almost like the items of exponent going back into history, which was fun. It's like the impact technology has had on society. And you you took us on a journey through like uh, industrial revolution and some of the ideas that have emerged, like the the philosophical ideas that underpin the computer. I, I really enjoyed reading it. So don't be too hard on yourself. Yeah, well, to be clear, the credit for that goes to Chris Dixon, which which wrote this this really fantastic article that that if you haven't read it yet, you absolutely should go read it. We'll put it in the show notes. And what what he was exploring in this article was the title of the article kind of captures it, which is how Aristotle created the computer. Now, right off the top, like you know, obviously there were no computers in ancient Greece, right? Mm. But the 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 point of of Chris's piece was that there's we always think about computers as physical objects. As you know, we started out we think about you what are the first computers? Think about those massive like things. We go, oh, look at this huge computer was in like ten rooms, and now mm. you know your watch is more powerful, or is a hundred times more powerful, or a thousand <laughs> tens of thousands more times more powerful than, than, than it was, and. Yes, that is part of the story of computers, particularly you know running originally running on uh, the way circuits were designed when they when circuits were when the transistor was invented, and that sort of enabled the entire sort of last forty to fifty years of evolution in computing. But that's only one part of it. There's two parts of computing. One is that is these physical objects and the transistor. But what is a transistor? A transistor, all it is, is switches, like circuits that, mm-hmm. that are either on or they're off. And how is it that we are sitting here, I am in type A, you are in San Francisco, and we are speaking to each other instantaneously and recording it, and we're going to mix it together with these cool graphical user interfaces and put together and post it on there. People all over the world are going to download these things and put them on their on their on these glass squares that are in their pockets I mean, and are going to put it in their AirPod going in their ear. And all this is running on ones and zeros. I was going to say magic, but yeah, ones and zeros too. It's all, it, it, that's all it is. And, and that, that's how all, all the communication works. Like it's, 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 it's really incredible. And what Dixon was exploring was the development of a way of communicating 
that basically devolves down to ones and zeros and how that started with Aristotle and his rules of logic and came all the way down to, you know, a super important philosopher was named Boole. That's what we get, Boolean, mm. Boolean logic, uh, which are, true, you know, Boolean, true or false, right? Which is ones and zeros. It's, it's, it's on or off. And this kind of long, sprawling project to distill knowledge, to distill logic into its its core parts such that you could, you know, it, it, they were doing it almost as a intellectual exercise and it turned out it was perfectly suited for computers. It's awesome. It's, it was so enlightening for me because it, I, I feel like people understand this or maybe it's it, it this understanding that there's a difference between the philosophical or, or uh, underpinnings of a computer and the actual physical aspects of the computer. Uh, it's, People understand Boolean logic, of course, but this idea that the philosophy came first and then the physical objects followed is just a fascinating way into discussing it. And it, it, I mean, again, I think it's probably not news that things like Boolean logic, all, all these elements, like that's not news to people, but the, the, like the way Dixon appro- uh, approaches it and introduces it, it really teases those two things apart. And it's just a, a really cool way of looking back and understanding how it all happened. So there was this a, a PhD student at MIT named Claude Shannon, and he basically kind of invented the computer because what what he I mean there's lots of folks that did uh, obviously Turing played a huge role and and he kind of mapped out how this would work but th- those were kind of the two giants you know when it when it came to inventing the computer and what what Shannon's insight was 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 that was that this logical approach Boolean logic mapped two circuits. And like that was like the that's like the aha moment. And once you had that, every like that was sort of where where the the streams the streams crossed as it were, right? And then and, and Dixon's article gets into Turing's contribution as well, and all the other things that went into it. I in this piece, I only talked about that first part, that sort of fusion aspect, because that was sort of the the trigger for me into where I want to talk about. But by all means, go and read his article. It's going to be one of the best things you've read. Like you know, very long time. It's, it's, it's that good. We won't be offended if you stop and go read it. <laughs> awesome. We, we, already, we already did the sponsor read. So. <laughs> so I was really struck by this, you know, this idea of the physical and the logic being two separate pieces and the fusion of them being sort of the, the aha moment, the, the genesis, like the, the genesis moment when, when it comes to the computer, right? Like we had the logic for, for thousands of years, or we, you know, we were working on it. And then it was when we, we added that piece, added that sort of mechanical piece that it became supercharged because the logic was, was, was still the same, but now it could be done, you know, like vastly more quickly or vastly more quickly. We've done much more quickly. And the entire story of sort of computing the last 50 years has been making that physical piece faster and faster and faster such that the logic, which is still kind of basically the same, can be done ever more quickly. Right. Like getting like more the story of Moore's Law, which is like one of the biggest stories of the last 50 years. It's like you take those computers that physically used to be the size of rooms, the, the, the mainframes, and now you're packing that amount of power into like your Apple Watch on your wrist, which is kind of mind boggling when you think about it. Right. Yes. No. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's that fusion though. That that fusion is that that point that really stuck out at me. Mm. And so when you think about if you back up and think about humanity as a whole, right? It's not just logic that that goes back to Aristotle to the very sort of like emergence of Homo sapiens. What has distinguished humanity has been the combination of of technology. We we build tools to make our jobs easier, to do less work. And then we have the capability of communicating those tools, how they work, so that they're remembered and they're shared and they spread across the species, right? I mean, like once, as I put in the article, once one human figured out how to make fire, control fire, it was inevitable that all humans would know how to make fire. Again, I'm sure it took thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of years for that to propagate, but it was going to propagate because of the the nature of what makes us what makes us humans it's a really interesting way of um i mean i've i've obviously the way that we use tools is one of the things that distinguishes us but like that framing of like one of the big things that separates us that was a really interesting framing i i, I appreciated that 
so if you think about this, if you think about all, all the tools that we made, whether it be controlling fire, whether it be the wheel, whether it be clubs, all the way up to you know agriculture and the various agriculture mm-hmm. revolutions that, that there were, and going all the way up to like the Industrial Revolution, where the Industrial Revolution, what made it so transformative was, and the, like this sort of where the sort of TikTok where the Industrial Revolution, I mean, it's always really fuzzy kind of where, tick, where, where it started, but you know, it was kind of around textiles where basically they had this situation where it took four spinners to serve one weaver when, when you were sort of uh, creating like cloth. And what happened was there was this invention such that one weaver could work twice as fast and it was still mechanical, right? Or it's still like, like human controlled, right? Or, or, or human mechanized, I don't know what the word is. But what happened was now it took eight spinners to serve one weaver. And so what that did was that drove innovation in spinning technology and basically someone invented a new way of spinning and then they figured out, oh, you could actually not, first they had a donkey power it and then they, they figured, oh, we could have water power it. And then you got, and then what happened is you got faster weaving, you got the mechanical loom, and then and then you got the cotton gin, and like you, and all this stuff sort of fed on each other because mm-hmm. what happened was one technology made one piece of it so much more efficient that there was a pressure to innovate in the yeah. other areas to keep up. And and then the key thing though was that introduction of like external energy, right? We we had figured out to use animals to augment our capability, you know, in, in agriculture ages before, right? But here to to use water where we're using an external energy source to do the job that a human used to do more quickly and more efficiently, that was, that's, at the very core, that's what the Industrial Revolution is all, is, is all about. The original API, and then people, like, <laughs> trying to make API calls and the server can't keep up, and they're figuring out, okay, let's upgrade, <laughs> upgrade our server from donkeys to water. Right, <laughs> exactly. But but this this sort of piece of, uh, and that's what tra- it transformed the world. It utterly and completely transformed the world because now you weren't bound sort of by by humans. You 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 could use it was it was the same tools as we've always had. In that you know, the, technology has always been about replacing human labor with mm. something. Uh, uh, you know, more automated, leverage. for lack of a better word. Creating yeah, leverage, leverage, yeah. A lever is, is literally yeah. the first tool is like a lever, right? Right. But here we're we're leveraging some external power so that a human, like a mechanical loom, you know, it, it, theoretically didn't even need a human at all. Right. And, and the real first, and this is you know, the whole idea of the idea of, of capital versus labor and, and all those, the different factors of production. And, the idea that this is where the the power of labor started to really decrease because you now had functionality that didn't depend on the constant presence or actions of a of a human. I mean, human was there to supervise all sort of things, but that that started the path down to today. You have factories where I mean, we we've, we spent time talking about globalization and, and, and jobs going overseas. More jobs, even more jobs have been related by automation, which is by industrial robots doing what people used to do. Yeah, it's interesting how one has got the press and the other has not. No one's complaining. Uh, I mean, very few people are complaining about uh, <laughs> robots taking their jobs. And in fact, was it Steve uh, Munchen recently who was he Munchen, was yeah. yeah he was interviewed and basically said that automation isn't a, a big deal. It's not something we should w- be worried about. And it kind of blew my mind actually. Well, he said artificial intelligence and machine learning around a big big mm. deal. But I think to your point. I think this is why, like, what distinction is there? That was sort of my first question about this. If you think about it, everyone's like, oh, what is he talking about? It, you know, there's tons, like, can't you see the machine learning revolution that's coming? It's mm-hmm. like, there's been a revolution of automated equipment replacing human jobs, not just recently, but over all of human history, right? Obviously, in the last 30 to 40 years with the IT revolution, that has been computers doing that, right? But And that's been an acceleration. And even if you want to limit to that, that's had a massive impact already. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I guess this drives that the clarification of the point drives at this this thing that you were getting at with the article, which is when people say AI, it's more complicated than just that. There are different types of it, right? Yeah, that that's what makes AI, one of the reasons it makes AI hard to talk about. So, I mean, kind of at a very high level, there's artificial general intelligence. That's the sort of popular conception of AI, which is a fully realized sort of computer that mm. that 
is is just as smart as a human or, or even smarter than a human. Right. And, you know, in, in yeah, there's a big article in Vanity Fair, you know, written by Marine Dowd, you know, <laughs> even more of an AI expert than we are, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, talking about, you know, and it's all about this, about oh, what, what are the chances of of AI sort of taking over the world. And it's it's a debate that we can have, but it's it, it it's still very much in the in the future. Like we're we're no closer to really general intelligence than we've been since the the concept was was invented. And I think it's I think it's an important discussion to have. And I, there were some really interesting points in the in the article. Like this is one of these things that once you create it once, you can't just undo it. So it's worth thinking about. But the fact we're so far away from it and. I mean, it lends itself so well from a publicity perspective and from a Hollywood perspective and from a capture the imagination perspective that there's this computer that is that is like us but better. It's and it, it gets all the attention, but it's taking away from the here and now, which is the other type of uh, artificial intelligence that you talked about in the article. Right, which is artificial narrow intelligence, and what's and so this one's also hard to define. Mm-hmm. And the 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 reason it's hard to define is kind of funny. It's because basically anything that is called artificial intelligence is artificial intelligence up until a computer can actually do it, and then it's no longer car- called artificial intelligence. <laughs> it's like it's like an away a, a mirage in the desert, and as soon as you get there, it's just moved further on, right? Right. Well, so they're like optical character recognition has always been was always held up as like artificial intelligence, right? Well, computers have figured out how to do artificial, you know, optical character recognition a long time ago, and now no one thinks it's artificial intelligence, right? There's lots and lots of examples of this, and I actually think I joke, but I actually think this moving the goalpost is appropriate. And the reason why I think it's appropriate it kind of goes back to the entire history of technology. What is technology? It's it's humans designing something to do a job. Right, mm. and even when we got to computers, and you got these these, these powerful these powerful machines. What computers did was programmed. It was programmed by humans, right? And and they were programmed by humans to do jobs that humans did better and more efficiently by leveraging capital instead of leveraging labor, right? So like accounting or ERP systems, right? We've spent time talking about like the the, the origin of like enterprise computing. Mm. You used to have back rooms. Like the reason they're called backroom offices is because they were literally rooms in the back of the office where you would have rows and rows of people with literally with ledgers in front of them, like writing down every single transaction of the company, and they would and they would have to talk about balancing the books because the books you stack them all up, they literally have to be balanced, right? I mean, they, like they, I don't know if that's actually true, but it sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> I, have to, I have to be I have to be careful my analogies after what was the one I did a few weeks ago calling a, a, double, a double bank, bank shot? shot? Yes, being from basketball, some billiards. Yeah, that was a rough one. Well, maybe <laughs> don't feel too bad. I sat there saying yes, like I knew exactly what you were talking about. I had no idea. Uh, anyhow, but you, those are all gone. Those jobs are utterly and completely gone. And why are they gone? They are gone because the mainframe came along and did accounting, right? And that's just the same as those all those jobs, those spinner jobs, those weaving jobs. Those are all gone because technology came along and replaced them. And techno- just as technology has come along and replaced all those manufacturing jobs with with industrial mm. robots, mm. right? But this this time it's slightly different. The question is where where is this line? Where is this line of, uh, of what is artificial intelligence? And I actually think that we are at the line now. And the reason we're we're at the line is I would categorize almost all of what came before with computers as being the continuation of human development technology. In that the distinguishing characteristic is a human designing it, a human doing the programming, the human design the mechanical loom, the human designed the cotton gin, the human designed the program that mm-hmm. replaced all those accounts. Mm. Yep. What's so fascinating about this machine learning space, and again, I don't want to overstate it. Like, there's a huge hype cycle going on about artificial intelligence and machine learning, and and I tried to caveat this in the article, and I almost feel like it wasn't clear enough because I still got pushback on this. And I agree, it's way overstated. Like this massive hype cycle about this, everyone just throwing around the words machine learning, blah blah blah, blah. and and we're still in the very sort of nascent stages of it. But by and large, what machine learning is, is you is given a set of data. It applies statistical techniques that are designed by human, to be clear, an algorithm designed by human, uh, and it's given a goal. And it basically, it, it uses these techniques to achieve the goal. Uh, and the 
but what's so fascinating about it is in the process of doing this, whether it be answering a question or figuring out an approach or doing things like translation, right? So translation, which was thought to be an AI functionality, the original version of like Google Translate was programmed by humans. The new version that just came out is is generated by machine learning. What does that mean? It means instead of programming the specific way in which to translate or, or whatever, it, it, <laughs> however you want to put it, Google basically set it up so that the algorithm would would learn how to translate languages by analyzing massive corpuses of, of data. And to me, that crosses the line. And not, not, like a, not like a moral line, but it crosses the line into artificial intelligence because the outcome, the output of these approaches are sort of new algorithms that are not designed by humans. Mm-hmm. Now, to be clear, humans set up the entire thing, and humans set up the learning algorithm and set up the goal and all those sort of stuff. So it's still very much a human-based endeavor. But there is a sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, there there is a kernel of creativity in here and that mm. something new is being created. Now, it's being again, it's being created from an established data set. It's being created using established methods and you know statistical methods and all these sorts of things. So it... It's just a line. Like we might be only an inch over the line, but there's some aspect where instead of the humans making the tools, the computer is making a tool. Yeah, I, I, there are a couple of points I would make. And the first was as I was reading the article, I was, um, I was trying to frame a way of describing it such that it would it would help establish what that line was. And I feel like it's it's kind of uh, come about as we've talked about this evolution on the podcast. We've talked about the gins and the computers and all these things. And I think what is different about them to what is here now is all those things that came before you could reverse engineer and it might not be easy to reverse engineer but you could look at the system and you could figure out how it worked and how it was built and if you talk to folks that are working inside of machine learning they cannot reverse engineer what's going on like they they don't understand they understand this at a high level, but the type of learning that, that uh, I mean, I have a friend who works in it and he described that it's almost the same way that uh, infants to toddlers, like in that progression, it's the same way they learn. That's the same way that these these machine learning algorithms are programmed. It's 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 just like those two elements, like one, you can't reverse engineer and two, the learning processes. You think about an infant just taking in huge amounts of data and trying different things and getting it wrong lots and then eventually getting it right and getting positive reinforcement. Like there's something about this that just is different. Right, and so th- that's where I come back to that fusion idea, right? And this was this was the sort of analogy I was I was trying to draw, which is we had been developing logic for thousands of years, but once we fused it with the circuit, that's when the sort of explosion came. Mm-hmm. In this case, we've been developing technology, technology that replaces human jobs for as long as we've existed as a species, right? Mm-hmm. Th- to me, though. The fusion is combining that creation of technology with computers themselves in such that computers are not the technology, but rather the computers are creating the technology. Mm. And so my point here is if indeed I'm right that this is a fusion, that the streams have crossed, again, in a very limited way, I'm not – I don't want to overstate the capabilities of these systems. And as incredible as they seem, they're very narrowly bound, right? Like – Go, right? The the, the Alpha Go, um, completely blowing people's minds and how it plays Go. It does not know how to play tic-tac-toe. It would not know how to play tic-tac-toe, and it cannot learn how to play tic-tac-toe, right? Like there, there's – this is not general intelligence. It's very narrowly bound to do one you know one sort of thing very, very well. So again, I don't want to overstate this, this sort of thing. But you have this aspect where there's been a fusion. There's been a fusion of computers – figuring stuff out on their own, which is what humans used to always do. Humans, and the same thing with logic, humans used to have to do the logic themselves. Then computers did it for them massively faster than we ever could. And the point that I was trying to draw is that I think we're, we've approached or crossed or approaching or in the general vicinity of the same point when it comes to the application of uh, and development of technology yeah. as, as, as a broad, broad sort of idea. Totally. Uh, I mean, totally. And you, you're, of course, uh, narrowly bound. It's not. It's not like these things have developed emotions or or anything like that. It's it's a artificial narrow intelligence. But here's the thing: you think about 
how many jobs there are out there that people have where they get experience and what the experience has built is exactly what you just described. They have this expertise in a very narrow field, um, whatever that might be. Um, and you look at where machine learning is being applied right now, and it, it's as these things get better, yeah, sure, they are not general, they're not, it's not general intelligence, but narrow intelligence is phenomenal for, uh, for, for, for operating certain things, for doing certain jobs. And I mean, what's interesting to me, the, the Munchen comment, like, I, I would have thought this was more on his radar and maybe he's falling into the trap of the general artificial general inter- intelligence versus narrow intelligence. So BlackRock, which is one of the largest fund managers in the world, has been a long holdout against using these types of things in terms of uh, using like machine learning and so on in terms of uh, deploying it to manage the, the capital that they have under management. And the CEO, uh, Fink, has recently gone out and said, look, this is, this is something that's coming and we need to get behind it. And uh, like th- the ability for these algorithms, actually, in many instances, they can outperform their human counterparts. I mentioned that because Munchen was... Uh, he was I know, he's from Wall Street. He's from Wall Street, right? And, like they're now coming after his jobs. Like it's easy to like say, oh, I'm... I'm not. I'm not worried about it. Like it's it's affecting things that that you know. I don't have any friends that work in in manufacturing, so I don't need to worry about it. But they're coming after his, his job, and like this is a like highly educated. Like this is this is like top of the top of the pyramid. This is a job that lots of really smart people aspire to. Like I want to go be a banker. I want to go manage money. Like there are machines coming for those jobs as well. I want to be a lawyer. I think that's another area. Basically, any space that has any sort of routine work and generates data is is utter is very susceptible to this. Data is what allows the develop allows the learning to take place. Mm. It's the application of these learning algorithms to data that generates you know the sort of quote unquote intelligence. Again, it's not real intelligence. It's 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 basically. Statistics gone wild, right? This sounds like a a very nerdy sort of. Uh, uh, <laughs> never mind. Um, anyhow, statistics gone wild. Uh, statisticians gone wild. Maybe that's there what I'm thinking go. of. <laughs> but the, but again, but but the, here's the thing though: is the thing about computers is that computers are really freaking fast, <laughs> right? And you can learn a, these. This sort of approach can be applied to basic clerical work in the in, in the legal profession be applied to lots of banking stuff it can be applied to all kinds of jobs that are relatively routine white collar thought of as being you know very sort of you know respectable upper middle class sort of jobs if they're they're actually more susceptible than a lot of the sort of jobs we think being susceptible to automation. We think about automation, we think about again like industrial robots and factories manufacturing stuff, right? In many respects, we've taken those about as far as they can go. And then that's not true, like they are progressing, but it's like it's a slow sort of progress because the actual sort of like moving stuff around, moving physical bits around is is still challenging, right? Unless it's a very in a very controlled environment. Whereas when it comes to processing data, like that's computer's bread and butter. Yeah, it's I, uh, I, I mean, like the extent to which this is going to start to like filter out throughout society, it kind of it, it's kind of nuts. There's this fascinating NPR article that we should link to. It's Planet Money. And it's it's a map with the most common job in every state over time. And there were lots and lots of secretaries in the in the 70s and 80s but you fast forward to 2014 the the most common job in every state is truck driver they're everywhere and you look at what all this big push is all this money that's chasing um that's chasing autonomous vehicles that we talked about it last week like all those jobs are at risk it's the same thing that you just described it's routine and there's lots of data and you start sticking cameras on the front of and and sensors on all these vehicles like you understand how the driver reacts in different scenarios you feed these things enough enough data and then all of a sudden you're going to be taking away one of the most common jobs across the United States. Yes, that that's absolutely right. And that's a perfect example of the sort of extinction event, you know, that might be mm. happening. That's still maybe a few years away. Mm. You mentioned the secretaries. What happened to the secretaries? I was find, trying to find old pictures of old offices, right? I really wanted one of like a, an accountant. So I, I chose that one. But the easiest ones to find are actually pictures of stenographers. 
of mm. people just in and just sitting around writing, dictating stuff, completely not only eliminated by by technology, right? Yep. And, and again, that's the story of technology. And in some respects, it's almost an encouraging story because you know the world has gotten better and we've created new jobs to replace the jobs that came before, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true, and that's certainly the case, uh, you know, with with the industrial revolution, for example. Mm. But it took a long time to get there, right? There are a lot of people unemployed, and if you look in the last thirty to forty years, there's been this real separation between like U.S. productivity and employment, U.S. productivity and wages. And mm. if you think why, and if you think think it through, it's actually how can that not be IT? How can that not be technology? Because what what is what is I what is computers? It's uh, I mentioned before, it's a capital cost. It's you're you're investing it, and the cost of running a computer is minimal. It's it's just the electricity that it uses, right? So if a computer is doing work, and by definition, the return from that work is accruing to the owner of the computer, the, mm. it's, it's accruing the capital, right? As opposed to if you have to pay a human, if you have to pay a pool of stenographers to type up memos, you have to pay them a marginal wage. By, by marginal, you have to pay them as they work, you have to pay them for that work, which means the return from that work Part of it's going to go to labor, and part of it's going to go to capital by owning it. But but that division is going to be much more strongly in the favor of of labor. It just is a fundamental transformation. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, there was a really great um, there was a really great uh, paragraph in your article that goes to this, and I, I want to mention it because it, it relates to this exactly. You can see the parallels between the industrial revolution and the invention of the computer. The former brought external energy to bear in a systematic way on physical activities formerly done by humans. The latter brings external energy to bear in a systematic way on mental activities formerly done by humans, and that that explains exactly what's going on as these computers get better they're able to take more and more of the jobs away that humans used to do that were like mental jobs and if you're a business owner and you have uh you have capital and the world is awash with it and you can lower your marginal costs by deploying capital in a way that that means you don't have to pay like you don't have to pay more as things scale up of course you're going to do it like that's that's the nature of fixed and variable costs but the the flip side of this is like if you don't think about the consequences this more broadly has on humanity you're going to be getting to the position where people are like i don't want to deploy the technology because it's taking away my job and like that's the balance like you actually have people who are incentivized to push back on this and you you, if you forget about them you're going to have a broad swath of society and it's going to be ever increasing that are going to view this not as progress but as as like regression well we're seeing that i think we're seeing it right now yeah by all accounts the the u.s in particular is doing well doing better than anywhere in the world right the gdp keeps going up economy is growing etc etc that's true but household income is not growing employment is flat and and why why and and it's so it's so tempting and easy and i know we've made this point previously on this podcast but it's worth making again and again it's so easy to get caught up in the sort of big numbers the big picture and to lose sight of what's happening underneath the surface right mm-hmm. cuz if you have you know if both of us make $50,000 our average income is $50,000 right if you make $75,000, I make $25,000, our average income is still $50,000. This is the danger of getting stuck on this sort of headline uh, number. Yeah. And I think for GDP, that it, it, it's one of those things where it's hard to see a scenario where that's not the case. Again, because if, if computers are replacing humans, and again, this is the story of humanity. So, mm. so I don't want to like overstate and be – I'm not being a Luddite at all. I think the difference, though, and the concern that I have – is that one, every time we've gone through this transformation as a species, it's been very difficult and people have been displaced and it's been hard to get back to where we were, yep. even though it's enabled us to go far beyond that, right? So it's, it, as a whole, it's a good thing. If you look at the entire course of human history, the Industrial Revolution was a great thing, right? But this is a great example of looking at the big picture versus the small picture. On a small basis, it was very, very difficult and and lots of upheaval and children working in the factories and wars and all this sort of stuff. You look at the word Luddite, right? That derived originally during the Industrial Revolution from a uh, like it, uh, the, the leader of a group of English textile workers and, and weavers who um, 
went around destroying weaving machinery because they didn't like they didn't like the fact that this was taking away people's jobs and and that is that is exactly to the point that you are making the yes in the long run humanity benefited but in the short run these people suffered as a result and there is a a gap in in the long run all this technological progress is in humanity's best interest but in the short run there is going to be a small and ever increasing group of people who see it as a threat because it's threatening their livelihood and yeah the idea of like re-educating people and getting them back into the workforce is great but but people don't learn as fast as you can update a program on a machine like it takes time for them to learn new skills and in the meantime what are they going to do and if we don't figure out how to address this we're going to have have a group of 21st century Luddites. And I don't say that in the derogatory or demeaning sense. It's like, it's it's another way of looking at it is like their incentives are different from incentives towards progress because they're being harmed by progress. Right. Well, I, I, again, I think we're seeing that. What What is the entire thing, right? Like, well, let's make America great again. That is about yeah. going back. It's about going backwards, going to this, this ideal, idealized yeah. vision of a world where you know, dad woke up and went to the factory and got paid got got paid a a great wage and, and came back, right? And so, so one, it's my point is it's already happening, it, and it's always happened throughout history. The concern is what is the speed with which it's happening? You know what I mean? In part, just the computer revolution as a whole has been very rapid relative mm. to to all of human history. But if my point about this fusion is correct, where now it's not just that computers are replacing jobs, but computers are creating the technology to replace jobs. And computers are way faster than humans are. To design a program that can do clerical work is it'd be devilishly difficult and take a very long time and work out bugs, et cetera. If a computer can do that and you can apply these massive server farms and thousands and thousands of computers to the problem. What's the speed with which we start creating Luddites? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it becomes, <laughs> what's the name of our podcast again? It's exponential, right? Yeah. Right. And, and, and this is, and this was my sort of frustration with that Vanity Fair article I referenced is it's great that we have all these technologists like imagining this general intelligence that kills everyone, right? But like, where's the where's the article? Where's all the thinking? Where's the where's the organizations that and where's the money that goes to figuring out like in the in the short to medium term, like what do we actually do about this? And that's beyond oh, give them some money, like give them some basic income. No, 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 totally. Like it. I mean, there's a fundamental assumption behind the threat that artificial general intelligence poses that that, that the rise of narrow intelligence isn't going to be such a big problem that it shakes society to the point that we don't even get there anyway. You know, it's it's the big picture versus little picture thinking. Being worried about general intelligence is thinking about the big picture. You're worried about like the extinction of the human race. And like you say extinction of the human race, yes, that's something to be worried about. But there are in the in the mm. for now there are lots of under the surface smaller picture mm. worries and by smaller picture i mean still very very big large massive problems and again I, i'm not we can talk about the, that other problem too but you know there's a lot of talk that needs to be done about this problem and heaven knows our politicians don't know about it either we just discussed the the treasury secretary not worried about machine learning affecting jobs yeah, you're, you're, that framing of top down, bottom up is exactly right. Because, the, and I hadn't thought about it like that until just then, but it's like such a, it's a fantastic articulation because the way this is going to play out is going to affect an individual. It's not going to be the, the, the Skynet or the robot overlords or whatever coming down and wiping us all out. And sure, that might be a problem. That, that might happen, animal. right? I mean, uh, yeah, no. And I, I, I actually fall more on the side of Musk, though that's a whole nother conversation. 
situation. But there's the point that you are making about the way this is playing out. It's the frog in boiling water. It's just, it's slowly turning up and it's slowly going to affect more and more jobs. More and more individuals are going to find themselves displaced. And it's, it's, it's hitting bankers right now. It's, it's hitting, it's hit secretaries. It's coming for truck drivers, which is like one of the most common jobs in the United States. It's going to affect so many jobs because so many jobs fit the criteria of what you just described. There's an element of routine and there's lots of data. And if there's not lots of data that's being collected on the job right now, people see what's happening. People see the potential of machine learning and they're making sure the data gets collected or building business models around collecting the data in order to enable machine learning to be applied against the problem. And it's going to, I mean, it's... I watched some of the YC Demo Day uh, presentations, and there was one that I thought was just fantastic in terms of progress for humanity, where these guys are going around in uh, the developing world, um, rolling out a machine that attaches to CAT scans. They charge the hospitals in the developing world to take the readout of the CAT scan, send it to a professional in the developed world that's been trained at uh, like their oncology specialists or whatever, read it, and then put all the data from that into uh, into machine learning to start to train the machine learning algorithm to displace oncologists everywhere. And on what like when you step back you think that's fantastic like if you can get an algorithm to better detect cancer than and you can see the path like you can see it the path to which that algorithm is better able to detect cancer inside of a human than any human can with all this experience and years of experience and they've built a business model to enable it and they're helping people in the developed world that's progress that's fantastic but what's going to happen to those oncologists who have spent 15 or 20 years of their life in training? They've got themselves up to eyeballs in debt because that's the way the education system is structured inside the United States. Like, what are they going to do when it when no one wants their, uh, their CAT scan read by a human when the machine does it better? I, did I just get on a soapbox? I, you did. I and that was I was I, I was impressed. I was very impressed. I I, I just wanted to let it linger for a moment, <laughs> let, let, sort of revel revel in it. Uh, it. I know a good soapbox when I see one. Yeah. Oh yeah, and you're exactly right. And one thing you just hit on that that makes this the world we're living in so I don't want to use the word dangerous, but so I mean I've talked about this in the context of like newspapers and media, right? What makes you think about, oh, we'll have a world of like people being artists and writers and stuff like that. The problem is that the best writer in the world can be read by everyone. The best artists can be viewed by everyone. The best music can be heard by everyone. There's no like all the different courts in Europe will will be patrons of the arts, right? There's going to be the best. The best dominate in a world of zero cost distribution, no marginal cost. It's mm-hmm. the same idea behind like the story yeah. of technology broadly, but particularly computers and particularly anything that is digital is the dominance, the absolute dominance of the the, the upfront fixed cost winner, right? Because there's no marginal cost. There's no marginal cost. There's one winner. It's, it's winner take all in all these sorts of areas, which just magnifies the problem even more. So in this case, and it just spreads so quickly. Once this company, if they succeed, if they actually displace oncologists, they don't displace oncologists one city at a time, right? It's not like the, the, the loom had to spread and it took you know 50 yeah. years or whatever. It spreads instantaneously, and, and again, the human capability has always been the ability to transmit knowledge and to spread knowledge. But it, it like it took millennia to spread the knowledge of how to control fire, right? It will take less than a second to spread the knowledge of how to read CAT scans by a machine. Yeah. Yeah, and, and all those folks, like what what do they do then? Well, this I mean, it, it's gonna it, it's gonna be rough. It's like I don't I People are like, wow, it's awfully nihilistic peace band. Like, I'm like, well, yeah. it, hi. It's it's rough. It's going to be rough. And you know, the 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 only future, the, the future, like, it has to be a bet on humanity. In in humanity generally, it's not going to be a top down program where we figure out what would. I mean, what makes what makes humanity what it is 
is the combination of the sort of ability to build tools and programming and the inclination and freedom to do it and 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 to c- compete along the way and and to gain the rewards of having done so and yeah. that second piece is just as important as the first piece there's not going to be a top down big program let's take care of all the oncologists that's going to solve all the you know get, we'll give the oncologists a basic income that's not going to solve the problem like it's not a cow that you need to give him food, right? There's more to being a human than than eating yeah. and, and sleeping. I, but do you know what's it scares me? It comes back to this Luddite point. Like, if we aren't, I mean, people are being so thoughtful about the artificial general intelligence, and I think it's fantastic that that debate is happening. But the narrow intelligence, that's the thing that's on the horizon much, much sooner. And if we are not thoughtful about the way we deal with this, the effects are going to unfurl in this uncontrolled way, and it's going to be really messy. Well, it's not, it's not just the, the artificial intelligence. It's, it, it's the last 30, 40 years. Like, it, again, I, I, so this is why it's kind of sort of a complicated article to write. Like, I think I wanted to define artificial intelligence. I think we have crossed the line to something that's meaningfully different, mm. right? Yeah. But broadly speaking, the displacement of workers, it's been going – like, no one's cared because there's all these blue-collar folks in Wisconsin, like where I grew up, and the GM factory mm. down the road closes, and no one cares. Like, no one in Silicon Valley cares. No one in New York cares. I'll tell you, a lot of my friends and neighbors cared. Yeah. But that was easy to ignore. So it's already been happening. Look what's happened. Guess what? I bet I'm pretty sure, actually, I know for a fact, a lot of those former GM plant workers voted for Trump. Yeah, now everybody cares. Now everybody cares. Yeah, and exactly. And now what happens when that spreads into in uh, up the chain, up to people where we quote-unquote care about more because they make more money, as sad as that statement is. The scary outcome for me is like in the same way that there's been a backlash against globalization because there's an attribution of the fact that the jobs are going because that's the thing that's easy to point to. There's demonization of people in faraway lands, like that's where all the jobs have gone. I, I think people will start to get the fact that machines and computers are doing this incredibly well and that there's some equivalent very poorly thought through response to just put a clamp on it in order to protect the status quo and if if we're not thoughtful about how we manage it it is going to stop progress yes we've both been preaching this from the rooftops we as an industry are next yeah. because and and in this case the ire will actually be more appropriate than blaming the immigrants right yeah. or more accurate i should say so, yeah, I mean, so <laughs> it's going to be a problem. What do we do going forward? Again, I, we have to bet. We have to bet on, on, on ourselves. And so to me, like, I would – you saw this whole healthcare thing fall apart, right, uh, with the Republicans repealing it. To me, this is the time to seize, whether it be Democrats or uh, – I mean, I have my own frustrations with the, with the Democratic Party, whether it be a, a new sort of – I think there's a fundamental realignment going on in, in U.S. politics. And I would love to see a new alignment that, one, universal health care. Again, lots of problems with it. I, I'm, I'm no, like, big government sort of – you know, advocate in general, but we have to provide basic security for people. It's not just because it's the right thing to do, although I think it is. It's because we have to remove the barriers for people to figure out what our future is going to look like. Like our future is not going to be decided by people's in Washington or people in San Francisco, our future is going to be decided by folks going out there and creating new jobs. It's been del- like, I mean, not, not to not to break my arm and pass it on the back, but like it's been delightful to see more and more people doing like subscription newsletters, right? There's a story this week about these two basketball bloggers, right? Making good money, like four or five thousand bucks a month. They just started like a couple like a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine, Bill Bishop, is is starting is is taking his newsletter, doing the same sort of model. Again, very small numbers. Like we're talking yes, I know it's only like you know but in this double out. digits. But 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 these are jobs that didn't exist anymore that are possible because of of, of what there is. And mm-hmm. for me, as I've already said, I was able to do it in part because in Taiwan and I, I did I had health insurance or and I didn't need to worry about like my family getting sick because I want to pursue this idea. And we need that at scale. Not No, not everyone's going to write internet newsletters in the future. This whole area suffers from the sort of winner-take-all effects 
you know, yes. generally. I recognize that. But I have faith. I have faith in humans because I have no choice. We have no choice but to have faith that people will create new jobs just as they did after the Industrial Revolution, as they've done throughout history. When jobs were displaced, we figured out new things, new needs, and created new jobs. So my platform, two pieces. Number one, universal health care. I just think, it, it, like, we need it for growth, even even though it will cost a lot. It will be very difficult politically. Number two is this regulation piece. And I want I wanted to touch on it because I know we've talked about it a few times in this podcast, and and we should have been more distinguishing. Basically, any regulatory repeal that benefits large corporations is the exact wrong sort of regulatory repeal. Yeah. Right. And like we saw it this week with the whole privacy thing, right? Which is just such a joke. Like, oh, I'm going to go find an ISP that doesn't violate my privacy. Oh, wait, they, they, they are, right? Everyone's like, oh, they haven't done it before. Why do you think Verizon bought freaking AOL? I wrote about this two years ago. I predicted exactly this. This is the reason they bought it is because they are going to leverage the data they get by viewing every single thing you go to. Sorry, I'm, I'm not, I got on your soapbox. Yeah, you did. I got down. You got up. But I wanted to make the broader point because I think we were – it's very easy to toss around regulation bad, right? Mm. The the sort of regulation, regulation that is so problematic is the regulation that restricts the creation of new kinds of businesses. Yes, yes. And because and, that's the oppor- opportunity cost. And in fact, what you will so often find is that the folks opposing the repeal of that sort of regulation – are the companies that are already in place, right? Yeah. Companies say they're anti-regulation. That's bullshit. They are they love regulation because it so often locks them in. They will, but they will put on their anti-regulatory cap for the one or two laws that are actually useful, right? Again, I'm not again, I'm not I, I think I've established the fact I'm not some big government sort of imposing sort of thing here, but we have to enable the individual. We have to enable individual human ingenuity it's the yep. only way and we need support on the bottom and we need to clear out all the mess on top yeah i i think to to pile on what you just said there and this is this is a theme that's come up a bunch of times these incumbents use the regular like regulatory capture in order to prevent disruptive startups to prevent new models coming along that threaten them and that is exactly the wrong thing to do like that is exactly the wrong thing to do i would add one other piece to the 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 platform which is like in recognition like if you play out the oncologist the uh the oncology example or any of these examples it goes from the rewards from an industry being relatively diffuse to increasingly being concentrated to the point where it's oftentimes winner take all and you see increasingly these massive behemoths like the way to fund this is to recognize that in a winner-take-all, generating revenue for government to support these programs from the people who are doing very well is the way to do it because it's not going to prevent them from doing very well because of the nature of the market. Like it's winner-take-all. They're not going to stop being successful because they they get taxed. Like that is the way to fund it. The irony of this whole situation is like if you think about those three planks that we just decided, it's the United States is moving away from all of them right now. Yeah, well, I would, I would just good, good point, but I would just break that down further. Sure, an income tax is by definition a tax on labor, which means it, it's basically the entirely wrong way to think about taxation going forward. If the, if the fundamental driving shift is from labor to capital, yep. Our Agreed. taxation should reflect that, and should be there should be more of a tax on capital and less of labor. Now, I get the uh, again. I know I just <laughs> made a bunch of you know people shriek in in in, in <laughs> disbelief, and I recognize you you don't want to disincentivize investment and the sort of payoff that comes from that. So I don't have specific proposals on that, but. At a very high level, yes. And again, incredibly difficult policy. More tax policy is more complicated than health policy, James. Uh, Indeed, because and it's because of this because there's so much incentives built into taxation, right? right? But this idea that is there a way for the sorts of investments and industries that are impervious to the sort of uh, disincentivizing effects of of taxing, like. If you're if you're Facebook, just just to take the most extreme yes. sort of example, right. right? There is nothing. Facebook's growth will not be retarded in any sort of way because of taxation. Because the winner take all effects are more powerful, right? This is the same sort of 
argument I think we've both made when it comes to patents. The idea of a patent was to spur innovation. The problem in technology is that there's such a return to being first and winner-take-all effects that we don't need the extra motivation, right? No one needs – no one is building Facebook or an iPhone because they can get a patent and, and, and generate licensing revenue. They're building iPhones so they can sell iPhones for a ton of money. Yeah, or the other way around, which is like, it, it's not like, like the argument against high taxation is like it, it disencourages, it discourages productivity. But like, it's not like when you're at a billion users, Facebook's suddenly going to stop because the tax rate's gone up, right? It's going to continue. What you just said is the perfect articulation of this point. The tax isn't going to change the behavior. Therefore, that is a great place to apply the tax. Again, it's easy to cherry pick like examples, yeah, like the Facebook sure. example, and the, 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 it's always in the details. And I'm yes, very co- again, we're not going to do yeah. a podcast about tax policy, and I'm very cognizant of the sort of uh, the impacts of of taxation. But I would just say, as long as we're taxing labor, we're also disincentivizing entrepreneurship. The sort of entrepreneurs that I'm talking about, I'm not talking. We just talk about Facebook. I'm not talking about Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not talking about Evan Spiegel. I'm not talking about the sort of entrepreneurs that we think about in the context of technology. Right? I'm talking about folks in. Madison, Wisconsin, or Janesville, where that that plant closed, that are figuring out new kinds of businesses that didn't exist before, mm. right? Mm. And they're successful, and and they're not going to be, they're not getting venture capital, they're not going to be unicorns. They're just going to be nice businesses that maybe employ a few people. And those folks, like it's not long if you're a successful business, making what three hundred thousand dollars a year is is not. Is very you you need to be right because you're gonna have down years. You need to be putting putting work mm. away and like that. And we're taxing them at thirty nine percent. And so, in some respects, I'm not just cognizant of the argument that uh, the tax rate can disincentivize investment, but it can disincentivize entrepreneurship as well. Particularly the sort of small scale, broad based entrepreneurship that I think is mm. critical. Yeah. I'm not worried about I'm not worried about the folks in tech. Right, they are going to keep taking shots at building these massive companies. I'm worried about the guy in small town America or big town America, whatever it might be, that wants to build a new kind of business empowered by the internet that hasn't been possible before. I mm. want him to have the security of having health insurance. Yes. I want her to not be disincentivized by the tax rate to grow her company or mm-hmm. to hire new employees. Like yep. the, the big guys are doing plenty well. They're doing plenty well. The platform has to be focused on, on, on these folks. So you're right. That is a good third point. Health insurance, the regula- regulation, and, and the tax policy, like focused on, on, on this category. Yeah, totally. Obviously, I fall into it, so I'm, I'm probably biased. But in, in a future where we have capital doing so much, we have to – empower we have to empower labor and i don't think we're going to empower labor by sitting it against capital like there's your traditional sort of marxist sort of battle it's empowering labor to to figure yeah. it out to do it on their own it's, it's going i mean let's go back way 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 back to the start and thinking about our rainforest analogy like those trees that make it all the way to the top to the to the 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 massive the massive trees they're going to be fine and the problem is all this anti-regulation talk that's happening right now is focused on them, is focused on yes. helping them because they are the ones that have the resources to gain access to uh, DC. But it's not them we should be focused on uh, on reducing the regulation. It's the it's the the vibrant ecosystem down on the rainforest floor. That's the thing that's being starved right now. It's being starved. It's not it's not doing as well as it could because like it's it's not getting the universal health insurance. Like the regulation that needs to go is targeting that and it's stifling there. And the tax, like they are the ones that end up paying more tax than the folks that are like that are attached to these massive trees. Like it's it's the Warren Buffett thing where he's like, uh, I, I pay less tax than my secretary. Everything that's that's that that uh, that folks are talking about in terms of. Uh, fixing the system like uh, inside of DC right now, they're focused on the wrong part of the forest. They should be focused on the bottom part of the forest, not the top, because the folks up the top are doing just fine. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I <laughs> there's a reason we usually don't talk about politics, much less much less tax policy. And again, I because I would think about it, I write about about incentives, right? I think mm. I, I worry about incentives and how that drives behavior, which is why I'm. I, I worry about taxes and I worry about generalized sort of 
welfare, right? Uh, but you know, I think that's a useful characteristic too. I'm like, I'm not a the, the traditional sort of democratic platform based on you know labor and you know probably more pro regulation. I think is a fair way to put it. That's why I I resist sort of being characterized in, in that sort of way as well, right? Because we had that old world. The old way the world was formulated was that triangle, right? We talked about this after the, the the Brexit thing, where you had government and you had big companies and you had labor. And there was this this sort of deal made between the three of those and it was it was self-supporting, right? One, that's fallen apart. We've talked about that. It, but two, I don't think it's not coming back. And it's not mm. coming back because the nature of the world has changed. We've talked about a lot of those corporations are themselves in danger, right? Because, uh, you know, the CPG companies and the telecom, yeah. well, not telecom companies, but like the car companies and like all these sorts of big conglomerates that employed lots of people, it's easy to beat up on them and say, you should take better care of your workers. I'm sympathetic to them. They're they're being disrupted and, and messed up by the internet just as much as anyone else. And can you begrudge a CEO investing in computers and, and capital costs to replace a bunch of workers when all her competitors are doing the same thing? No, no, of course not, right? There's 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 such a tendency to demonize the other side and, and they're being bad actors. Yeah. The, and so much of what is happening, what happens to companies, what's happening in the world broadly are structural. The very structure of the way the world mm-hmm. works is changing. It's changing dramatically. And by necessity, our political solutions, our social solutions have to change as well. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the Dixon article, which is where we started off, talked about like the history of computers almost being like this this history of ideas and competition of ideas that was given a physical manifestation. And I feel like there's an element of this competition of ideas that needs to happen in the political sphere that's that's just been lacking the last little while. Yeah, like and th- that's what happens when things grow stale, right? You you that's why you get the politics that we've had of no compromise because mm. there's that's all that's left all that's left is holding on to power yeah because the 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 ideas are are from another are, are too old on both yep. sides yep agreed all right yeah uh <laughs> the article was nihilistic i don't know maybe the podcast hit it a little bit too <laughs> you know what i mean I, I, I worry. I worry from a macro level that we as a society handle this and that th- these massive transformations in the way countries work and the way that economies work and the way that politics work usually don't happen peacefully. Yeah. And and so that, that, that worries me. At a very big picture, though, you know, we as a, we as a species have made it this far. We have. Uh, look, I... It's just this notion that I think we, particularly the folks that are listening to this, need to keep in mind, which is like we can't do it by ourselves. It can't just be progress without without um, reference to the consequences. And if you want to be able to continue to drive the progress and to profit so be so handsomely rewarded from driving this progress, like keeping in mind the consequences and the people who will suffer the consequences and how that will be taken care of and driving that debate, I think is just is going to be as important for us going forward as driving the progress itself. Yeah, but it's probably wishful thinking. There's not much of a history of people willingly giving away their their positions. Well, if they that's true, but if <laughs> they don't give it away, I mean. That's true, but if it's not given away, like it will be taken. Like this is one of these. This is one of the things that I've come to appreciate the last little while. The best way of being greedy is to be generous. The system gets too far out of whack for too long. People like it doesn't end well. Yeah, I I I, com- I completely agree. And by the way, I I don't say that like we've made it this far as a species. I mean that very sincerely. It, it, it's the same sort of thing with like the the regulation. Our thing we had a few weeks ago where the reason why regulation, particularly at this small scale level, is so costly is because of foregone opportunities. And it, it, the reason it's so hard to argue is because you don't know what those opportunities are by mm. definition. Because mm. those opportunities, if I knew what the opportunities were, I would take care, advantage of the opportunities. You know what I mean? There's no one person, no point of view that can imagine the potential. And so the, the the trick, the key is to un, is to smooth out the runway, 
right? To remove the barriers. I can't, I can't make someone be an entrepreneur. I can't make someone yeah. pursue a, a job. But right. what, but what ideally we as a society can do is remove remove like the worry about health, remove the, the chance of disaster, remove the worry about their family being out on the streets because someone got sick. And we can get rid of stuff that has nothing to do with their job or is outdated, has nothing is especially in an age of technology. Like this is the whole thing with like the, the Uber thing, right? Like how many of these regulations are actually applicable in a world of GPS and phones and all that sort of stuff. Again, not not to, not to get into Uber, but just by and large, I think that that's the art. Like let's remove the friction in the same way that Silicon Valley does this so well and so many other elements. Like it's from a policy perspective, remove the friction to enable people to productively apply themselves. Yes. Yes. Very well put. Anyhow, uh, that was the uh, quite the meandering conversation, but hopefully – you know, I, I I didn't want to leave it on the – for the article, I had to leave it where it was without getting into sort of policy prescriptions. But I did sort of want to get into it get into it here because I, I don't think it's hopeless. And, and even if it is hopeless, like what's the point of being – I'm not a nihilist. Like I, yeah. I, may, I can countenance the possibility that it's hopeless in my head and choose to push forward anyway, yeah, to choose to, to push forward. Yeah, and, uh, and that's what I do. Yeah, it's a good way to be. All right, our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring this episode of Exponent. <laughs> that was that was a little jarring, and uh, no fault of anybody's, but like, yes. so you say, you're saying they didn't sponsor that segue? Uh, maybe, yeah. The, as as nice as it was at the start, it, like we we didn't quite pull it off so smoothly at the back end. But I guess that's life. So what can you do? I'll t- I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one, mate. Speak to you later. All right, bye bye.